We'll turn now as, uh, as we turn our hearts to the scriptures, to the gospel of Mark. If you like to read along with me, you can turn to Mark chapter 2. Also, as always, you're welcome to just uh, listen if you'd prefer to do that. Uh, just as a reminder to us, we've been in Mark now for a few weeks, and the last, last few weeks we've seen Jesus is demonstrating his authority, and his authority particularly is his right to rule in various areas or aspects of life. So a few weeks ago we saw that Jesus demonstrates his authority over sickness and evil spirits. And then last time we saw that Jesus is demonstrating his authority over sin. This week we'll see Jesus demonstrating his authority over another aspect of life. We'll see if you notice it as we read, but before I read, um, let's pray as we approach God's word. Lord, we long to know you, to really know you in our guts. Not only so that we can praise you, but our praise is also good for us, that you've designed these things also for our good. And so, Lord, would you make us humble as we read? Would you make us submissive as we read to really hear your word by your spirit so that we might believe? We ask these things then in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. You can look to Mark chapter 2. I'll start in verse 18. Again, we'll read quite a large number of verses so you can follow along with me. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. This is God's word. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they don't fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the, old from, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts a new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine's destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal the man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? 
but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is God's word. So, just as a reminder here of why we're reading in such large bites, part of the reason for this is because Mark puts stories that go together together. So, the, the one example of how this might go is Laura and I have been married for six and a half years and we just now got around to putting our wedding photos together in a photo book, right? Six, six and a half years later, we finally got around to doing it um, just this past month and it looks beautiful. Oh, it's beautiful. It was just a good reminder of going through that day. It was a good day, right? She's pretty. I'm not as pretty, but trying to do my best, you know, and it's a good reminder of all that's going on. Now, what's interesting about the photo book is the photo that's on the back cover happened in the middle of the wedding day. So when we're putting together photos for the photo book, we're not strictly going chronologically. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. We're putting things together in groups, things that go together, and that's the sort of thing that Mark is doing in his gospel, right? It's generally chronological. At the beginning, Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry in the wilderness, being baptized going through with fasting for 40 days, and beginning to preach, to teach, to heal. And he'll progress, and we'll generally follow him chronologically until at the end, he dies for sin and is resurrected in victory. So generally, we're following some sort of timeline, but it's not strictly so, and it's also not completely out of order. This is not a bunch of photos just thrown into a box. Does anyone do their photos that way? Uh, yeah, oh, some glad uh, you know, professions. Yep, my photos are just in a shoebox. That's not quite what this is either. It's not completely random, but things are grouped that go together. So for a wedding, we've got a group of the ceremony, a group of dancing, a group where girls are doing makeup, and so Mark now is grouping things together here according to authority, particularly Jesus' authority over the Sabbath. And even broadly, broader than that, his authority over the whole law. So I'll tell you what I mean. Let's look at each photo or each snapshot individually so we can see how these are related. If you look at the first one, there's a discussion here about fasting, and people are wondering, it's, you know, we've got John the Baptist, his disciples, they're fasting, and we've got the Pharisees, their disciples, they're fasting, but the disciples who are following Jesus, they're not fasting. Why not? Well, the law said, particularly when we go back to the Old Testament, that fasting was required. It was a mandate once a year. One time, particularly it's discussed in Leviticus chapter 16, on the 10th day of the seventh month. So very specifically on this day, the day that they called the Day of Atonement, that was the day that they would fast. And what happened on the Day of Atonement was the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and they would make a sacrifice for the people. An animal sacrifice would be killed. It would be very bloody. 
And this was to show us that we cannot, of ourselves, come before God because we are unholy. He must make us clean. And so to prepare for that day, the people were supposed to fast. Don't eat anything for that day. It's a reminder of their need, of their complete dependence upon God. Now, sometimes the people could fast for various other occasions. Sometimes if, if the nation of Israel was in war, they would fast to seek the Lord. Or uh, if there was particular occasions of sin, they wanted to show their repentance, they would fast. But the law required that fasting would happen once a year. That's what the law said. Now, what did the Pharisees say? We know when Jesus talks about a parable in Luke chapter 18, he describes a parable in a tax collector, and he describes the Pharisee as saying, Lord, I tithe and I fast twice a week. Somewhere along the line, it had become common for the Pharisees to not eat two days out of their week. Somehow that this would make them holier. This would make them better in the sight of God. So this was their common practice. So the law said fast once a year. The Pharisees, they say fast twice a week. What does Jesus say? And he's fasting none at all. His disciples are fasting not at all. Why? His answer here is kind of cryptic, at least the beginning. Jesus has that funny way of not directly answering the questions. They say, why don't your disciples fast? And he says, can the, those who are with the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is there? Basically, he's saying this, when the bridegroom comes, this is a time of celebration, of fulfillment. All the things that you've been waiting for, planning for in this wedding day, here comes the bridegroom, and that day is now here. That the fasting then would be a pointer. It doesn't look to itself. It doesn't turn inward. It's to direct us something. So often, fasting was a sign of mourning, of brokenness, of desperation, of longing, of need. And Jesus says now that the thing that you have longed for is here. So we don't fast. We feast. It's changed from fasting to feasting. And he's got these kind of funny metaphors, the cloth. You don't combine old cloth and new cloth, and you don't combine new wine and old wineskins. And those kind of metaphors are a little foreign to us because we don't have things quite the same way. But the point there is do not mix the old and the new. There was an old way of doing things, but a new thing is now here. Now, he doesn't get rid of fasting altogether. If you'll notice, he says... If I can find it here. Um, the days, verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and in those days they'll fast. In other words, there will be a day when I am no longer physically present with you, and you'll fast again. You'll long for me again. But for now, a new thing is here. And don't confuse this new thing with the old. So there's our first snapshot, is Jesus dealing with fasting, particularly with the law around fasting. So now we get to this second snapshot, starting in verse 23, and he and his disciples are walking through a grain field, and they're pulling off uh, the 
the heads, the plucking the heads of grain and eating that. Can you do that, by the way? Farmers, is that a thing? Can you just eat the wheat or str grain straight off of it? I'm seeing some nods, you know, and, and other shrugs. I, I kind of shrug. I don't know, but at least those that know seem to be nodding. You can walk through and pluck it. So my version of this, my sort of personal example, is wanting to go through the grocery store and eat the grapes. Anyone else do that or at least want to do that? It's all right. You can admit it, okay? I at least want to eat the grapes, right? I'm there in the grocery store. There's food around. I'm hungry. I want to eat. And so the issue here is not actually the eating itself. If you'll notice, the law in Deuteronomy actually says that what they're doing, walking through, plucking off grain from other people's grain fields, that's okay. In fact, it's even commanded in Deuteronomy 23 that you allow that. The reason for this is it would help deal with the issue of poverty, that the poor could, it says specifically, you cannot put the grain in your pocket, don't put it in your purse and take it away, but you can walk through and eat what's there. So that's what the law said. So the issue was not the fact that they were eating, the issue was when they were eating. If you look, it says, verse 23, one Sabbath, they were going through the grain fields. Verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So the issue is the Sabbath here, and particularly, what is lawful? What does the law say? So the law says, if you'll remember, it's part of the Ten Commandments, right? That six days you shall work, and on the seventh you shall rest. And this will be a Sabbath day for you, and you shall do no work. It will be a holy rest to you. So the Pharisees, the rabbis, the Jewish teachers then, had to figure out what does it mean that you don't work on this day called the Sabbath. The law said we're to have a Sabbath day, a day where you don't work, where there's a holy rest. So the Pharisees then said, we have to describe exactly what we mean by doing no work. And so they did something called malachat. And it was 39 categories of activities that were forbidden on the Sabbath. Very specifically, they laid out what you were not allowed to do. And let me read them just so you know. Um, I'll, I'll do my best not to, yeah, I'll just read all through this. You are not allowed to... Um, no sowing, plowing, reaping, binding, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing, cleaning, combing, dyeing, spinning, stretching, making loops, weaving threads, separating threads, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing, tearing, trapping, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, line ruling, cutting, writing, erasing, building, breaking down, carrying, extinguishing a fire, kindling a fire, and striking a final hammer blow. It almost reads a little bit like a Dr. Seuss book, just the cadence of it. But those are the 39 things then that, were, that they said are not allowed. And I'm not saying bringing all these things out to make fun of that, uh, to say, ah, that's all rubbish. They were trying to divide out what the law said. But Jesus now is saying to the Pharisees that you're missing the point you're totally missing what it was that I have to say to you. And that's when he draws out this incident uh, about David from 1 Samuel chapter 21. And he also says, David did what was, this is in, in verse 26, what was not lawful 
So again, Jesus is discussing it, but he says you're missing the point of the law. You've got it backward. You have said that man is for the Sabbath, but I'm telling you that the Sabbath is for man. In other words, the Sabbath is a pointer. It is directing us to something much deeper. So here's an example of that. We have in our laws, our government laws, a speed limit. So when you use the roads, you can only drive so fast, or at least the law says so. And if I drive that fast, I'm within the law. If I go over that, I'm breaking the law. So if I'm driving down this highway here and I go 65, I'm following the law. But the point of the law then, what is, why is that law in place? It's to protect life, to make things safe and good for us. But if I'm driving with a pregnant wife in labor, you better believe I am driving faster than 65, right? I'm pushing that gas paddle down as fast as it can go so we can get to the hospital because the point of that is to protect life. I'm then following the spirit or the heart of the law even while I'm breaking the letter of the law, the technical part of the law. So then the question is, what is the heart of the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath, this day of rest, pointing us to? And for the sake of time, I won't go into this all the way, but if you'll remember in Acts chapter 16, when God brought the people of Israel out and they had the first Sabbath in the wilderness, they're on their way to the promised land, and they're walking in the wild, thousands of them, and they have no food. And they cry out to the Lord, Lord, would you do something? Would you help us? And if you'll remember, he brings manna. They wake up in the morning and there's this stuff that was kind of like bread, sort of like honey bread on the ground. And the Lord said, collect this. It will come to you every day, but don't keep it more than a day. You eat it that day. And some of them tried to keep it. They would save it, put it in their Tupperware or whatever their version of that was. But in the morning it would have worms. It'd be gross. So every morning they would go out and they would collect enough bread. I'm sorry about the feedback here. They would collect enough of this manna just for that day. But here's the catch. The Lord said, on the seventh day, so on the day before that, collect twice as much as you would normally eat and prepare that for two days so that this following day will be a day of rest for you. And so most of them did that. They collected enough for two days. They prepared it. And then on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day, they had food to eat. But it says that some went out to collect this bread that came every day. And on the seventh day, there was none. What then is this Sabbath pointing us to? This day of rest is not just about taking a nap, although naps are often good. I personally like naps, right? But this day of rest is rooted in trusting God to see that he will provide for my every day, that my needs will be covered, that our Lord is sufficient. So in authority, Jesus is setting up a, the Sabbath as a pointer to show us himself. That's what's happening in this last picture. There's the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. Now, the law said you're to do no work on the Sabbath, and here's this man in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees would have said, you cannot heal. 
You can't do that on the Sabbath unless it's an emergency. Unless he's gushing blood, you can go ahead and put something over that. But you've got a withered hand. You can't deal with that on the Sabbath. They're talking about what are you supposed to do? What is the technical part of the law? But Jesus then leans into that. Verse 4, he says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill it. In other words, he's asking us, what does the law really mean? What is the heart of the law? What's the intent of the law? To do good or to do harm? To give life or to kill? And then when there's silence, when no one responds, Jesus follows the heart of the law and he heals this man. Now, let me bundle up all three of these snapshots and pull them together so we can take this home in our pocket. What is Jesus doing by showing us his authority over the law? He is not against the law. I'll just point that out. He's not anti-law. There's a big fancy word for that called antinomianism. And we don't need to know what that means, but that, you know, in essence, it's just being anti-law. Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the law. So he's not against the law. He's also not anti-religion. He's in a synagogue here, and Jesus affirms a lot of the fact, a lot of aspects of our religious practice in the sense that they are pointers to some good intent. So he's not anti-law, he's not anti-religion, he's also not picking and choosing laws, as some people say we do. There's, there's a failure there when they say, oh, you pick and choose which laws to follow. There's a failure there to distinguish between the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial law, which again, I won't go into, but Jesus is affirming these things. So what is Jesus doing? This is the main punchline here. What is Jesus saying in all of this? Jesus here is anti tradition. Jesus is anti-tradition. What do I mean by that? I'm not saying he doesn't like Christmas traditions, for example. Oh, we eat ham, for example, on Christmas Day, or we unwrap one gift on Christmas Eve. That's not what I mean. Tradition in the sense that we set up something in place of the law and essentially call it law. Or, uh, Jesus describes it this way in Matthew chapter 23, the Pharisees and the scribes, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. In essence, tradition is laying burdens on people. It's creating these lists of do's and don'ts, things you're supposed to do and not supposed to do in the name of tradition and calling it good, that you're supposed to dress this certain way and you're supposed to eat and drink this certain way and you're supposed to act this certain way and you're supposed to socialize this certain way and we do this. If someone walked in, you'll know when you've got a tradition set up when someone violates it. When someone walks in through that door, dressed differently than they're supposed to, right? Or their hair looks different than they're supposed to, or their politics is different than you think they're supposed to be. That's putting up tradition in place of the law, and it's not good. That is the sort of thing that makes some people angry at God. Because then they begin to see God 
as this oppressor, sort of this giant cosmic force that's really just trying to keep everyone under his thumb, that is really a God mostly about rules, and maybe you've even felt like that. It feels like God is just setting up things that we're supposed to do and not supposed to do, and it slowly begins to make you angry. Let me say to that kindly, that those who feel those sorts of things really are not angry at God. What they're angry at is the abuse of God's law that has been set up in the name of tradition. And if you look, Jesus is really angry at that too. Verse 5, Jesus looked around at the Pharisees with anger grieved at their hardness of heart. He's saying, you've taken this good law and you've warped it into something that has just laid burdens on people, made them feel crushed under that sort of oppression, and that is disgusting. That should not happen. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not saying that there's no legal standard at all. God's good law has set up Rules, if we can call that, call them that. Law for our sex and sexuality. Laws for us in regard to our money. Laws for us in how we relate to things like alcohol. Laws for us about how to treat our neighbor and our wives and our children and our enemies. He set up laws in how to serve the poor and the widows and the orphaned. This is God's good law, and Jesus is restoring the law to its good purpose here. I'll end with this. We in the Reformed tradition pull out as themes in Scripture the uses of the law, and we describe them as having three uses or purposes. So here are the three uses or purposes of the law. The law is a mirror, a wall, and a window. A mirror in the sense that it reflects myself. When I look at God's law, I see my own sin. I see my need. I see how much I need to come to Jesus in faith. So that's a mirror of the law. The law is also a wall in the sense that to a degree it restrains evil. When the law says, don't murder, that prevents at least some murders from happening. It's a good thing. It's a wall in that sense. But at its heart, the law is a window that we look through, a window into which we can see the heart of God. We can see what pleases God, what brings him pleasure, and what brings us pleasure then when we follow God's law. So the law is not a list of forbidden pleasures. The law is a window into true delight in the Lord. So while the Pharisees were busy trying to divide out what the law technically said. They were busy fasting, trying to figure out what to do and what not to do. Jesus now comes in full authority saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath, I am Lord of the entire law, and he's feasting and eating with his disciples and healing people and enjoying every minute of it. This is the heart of our God. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we admit that we, have, we ourselves have twisted and warped your law. 
we violate your good law and we make up laws and call them good and inflict them on other people. Lord, we're sinners. Thank you for your mercy to us that you've given your good law not only for your pleasure, but that it would bring us pleasure too. Lord, we ask for your mercy upon us. Help us to see your good law as a pointer that would really guide us to you. Lord, we ask these things in the sweet name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.